0: Again, the doors close at four o'clock Pacific today. You can sign up at kathyhaar.com slash join. I cannot wait to spend 12 weeks with you and watch you become a master at manifesting the most gorgeous experiences and opportunities and abundance into your life.
1: Thanks to Audible for
0: supporting the show. Audible is giving members even more with the Plus Catalog. Visit audible.com/dreamjob or text dreamjob to 500500 500 to start your free 30-day trial. Hey, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. I'm so thrilled because James Altucher is here today and he's just so cool. He's brilliant. He's so inspiring. He's a writer. He's a best-selling author. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's a podcaster and investor. He's also a chess master. He's written over 20 books, including The Power of Know, Choose Yourself, Reinvent Yourself, and his newest book. It's so good. It's called Skip the Line, The 10,000 Experiments Rule, and Other Surprising Advice for Reaching Your Goals. It's all about breaking the 10 Thousand hour rule of achieving mastery. This book introduces you to a new mindset, a new way of thinking so you can pursue your passion, build the skills you need to succeed, and make your dreams actually come to life. You're definitely going to want to run and get your copy right after you listen to this interview. Also, if you don't already know his blog, it's incredible, jamesaltisher.com. He's attracted more than 20 million readers and His podcast is The James Altucher Show, where he talks with guests like Tony Robbins, Mark Cuban, Ariana Huffington, Adam Grant, Angela Duckworth, and he focuses on how these people reinvented themselves. James is honestly one of the most fascinating humans I've ever had the pleasure of hanging out with. He's always trying something new, putting himself in totally unheard of scenarios, which is why he's so full of so many intriguing stories. And he's about to share some of those with you in this conversation. Without further ado, please welcome the one and only James Altucher. Mr. James, I'm so happy that you are here. Well, You're, thank
2: you for having me here.
0: The thing about you is I've like loved you from afar and love the way you think and write. And I like your thank hair. You. Um, thank you. And I, I know that my audience is going to be so into this. So can we talk a little bit about your journey to finding this place where you start blogging and everyone starts to read and listen and go crazy? Like what was the arc that led you even to start sharing your words?
2: That's a very good question. And I'll try to make it as quick as possible because everyone should have a different path. Like if you just, you know, go to school, get a graduate degree, get a job, you're writing and and it turns into something that's like a straight and normal path. And it's nobody ever does that. And I, in 1990, I had a crush on this girl and she liked this guy who kept calling himself a writer and he would read James Joyce and he had a little beard and he'd read Thomas Pynchon and he'd always carry around a pen and she was like in love with him. And I was in love with her. And so I figured, you know what? People like writers. And I was going to graduate school in computer science at the time.
0: Oh my God. I love that. This is how the story begins with a girl.
2: Okay. Yes. And so I just started writing and reading. I had never taken an English class in college. I mean, I when I was a kid, I read a lot, but you know, I kind of stopped reading a lot in college. But then I just became obsessed. I started reading every day for hours and then I dropped out of or I was kicked out of graduate school because all I would do all day long is I would write 3,000 words a day. And I did this for years and years. I wrote four novels, dozens of short stories. Nothing got published. Nothing. But when you love something, you keep on going through it and you keep on learning. Like people think you should do what you love because it'll make you happy. That's ridiculous. Like I love TV. If I really wanted to be happy, I would watch TV all day long. But (laughs) when you do something you love, anything that's worth doing, you're going to be unhappy. A lot of the time, not most of the time, but a lot of the time, because as you, when you love something, you want to get better at it. You want to master it. And as you get better, you, you encounter more and more, resistance from the higher and higher levels have good people. You know, if you're playing tennis and you want to master it, the better you get, the harder the competition is. So you're going to lose more games as you learn to get that that level and then you'll be unhappy. So getting good at something implies some level of dealing with frustration and so on. And the energy required to deal with that requires that you love something else. A lot of your energy is going to be spent convincing yourself to do something you don't love. We have a limited supply of energy every day, better to put that energy into mastery rather than, oh, do I really have to do this again? So I loved writing and I started working at HBO, which gave me a chance to do some writing and then started making websites and I started doing it as a business. I sold that business for a lot of money and then I went totally broke, 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 broke. I went from $15 million in the bank to $143 at my low point point couldn't pay my mortgage, lost my home, lost my friends because everybody was friends with you on the way up. Nobody's friends. And I was suicidally depressed. Like I would walk around and I would say to myself, how do people do that? How do people have the muscles to make their mouth smile? I don't even understand. Like I didn't even remember if I had ever smiled and it was really hard. And then it's odd, but I like these waiters pads And uh, I bought a box of waiter's pads, and every morning I would start writing ideas down on them, 10 ideas a day to exercise. I felt like you had to exercise the idea muscle. Like if you don't exercise it, it atrophies. And after a few weeks of this, I felt like I was getting out of the depression. Like my neurons started firing. I started having ideas of books to write, businesses to start, people to help. And one thing turned into another, and I started I started thinking of ideas for this one writer who I liked to write. I was I was getting interested in investing. And I sent this writer, Jim Kramer, hey, you should write these 10 articles. And I one of my idea lists was 10 articles I would like to read if Jim Kramer wrote. And he was a, a writer for thestreet.com and CNBC and Yahoo. And he wrote back right away and said, These are great. You should write them. And finally, for the first time ever, because I was sharing my ideas. I was getting paid to write. I framed the first $200 check I wrote for writing an article. And then I got, because I had spent so much time practicing literary style writing and fiction writing, I was actually a very good financial writer because I wasn't a dry, like buy Apple stock. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I would tell like these insane stories that would lead to some recommendation. And so I got My first book deal, I got started writing for big newspapers, got the second book deal, the third book deal, the fourth, fifth, and they were all boring. They were all, I mean, they were interesting, but (laughs) about finance, but for me now, I don't like writing about finance, but I went broke. I started another business, made money, went broke. I started another thing, made money, went broke. This happened to me four times where, and I kept thinking, I said, why is this happening to me? And it was really difficult psychologically at the worst moments. And then finally, I kind of got through it a little bit. And then something changed. I said, you know, nobody cares about what stocks to buy or whatever, like that's so unimportant. And so I started writing, I went broke. And this is what happened. And all these insane stories, because I had gone broke so many times and had so many weird experiences in the process. And so I started writing about that. And people thought I was insane or or that I was about to die and I was writing my confessions. Like No one ever had ever written this kind of style before, particularly in finance. And now what I call failure porn is like a a mainstream genre. But I was writing this every day and people were like, what the hell is this guy doing? And and people would call me like, I heard you had a stroke. And people were saying, you're never going to get a business opportunity again. And the odd thing was because I was being so honest, And I became known as this honest, very vulnerable person who was telling about all these failures. I got more opportunities than ever. I got a larger audience than ever because so many people were going through this but afraid to say it. And that led to me thinking of all sorts of ways people could help themselves in this very difficult world. And I was writing about all these work-related things, all these career-related things that I was taught all my life was just BS. Almost everything I was taught was wrong about not only education, but about how one should live one's life and what are good financial decisions versus bad, what are good life decisions, what are good career decisions, what's the normal way to do things, or else there's a stigma. Well, it turns out, dive into the areas where there's a stigma, like for instance, self-publishing and success is often there because no one's there. And so I was writing about this, And it was getting more and more popular. And I realized, well, what did I do to bounce back every time? And I started writing about that. So it kind of verged between this narrative nonfiction that was almost like fiction, but nonfiction and self-help. I was like kind of combining the genres and I started writing books related to this. And so I wrote a book called Choose Yourself. And I Self-published because I wanted to show people you could be successful self-publishing. My most recent book is traditionally published, but I've gone back and forth depending on my goals for that book, and that turned out to be my most successful book ever, with more than a million copies sold. And there's a TV series about mm-hmm. it, and oh, and all, all these things. And um, and Amazon loved it. I was the best uh, self-published nonfiction book ever, and it, it's just been a great ride writing. And I'm, I think a lot of writers want to write a book because it's a thing to do but the art and science of writing is so beautiful to me and to this day you know 30 years after I started writing I've loved many things since then and and I've tried to master many skills but writing is is my my second true love uh when I was a kid I was a, a ranked chess master that's my first true love but writing is is up there with chess
0: Okay. Here's the thing. First of all, I just have to say it because every cell in my body just wants to say this to you. You are so lovable. It's, it's it's like, you're,
2: I don't always believe that, but I'll go along. You're
0: so lovable. You're, you're fascinating. You're adorable. You're endearing. You're humble and you're brilliant. It's such a pleasure and it's so generous that you show up with this kind of energy all the time. And I just want to like hold witness to that, number one. Number two, no wonder you're so successful because of that. And everybody knows it. It's just you. It's this very special sort of unique starburst thing. And then you like said 17 things that I wish we could unpack. But the one thing I want to unpack is that loop when you said, And I just kept starting and failing things four times. I think you said it was a difficult situation. And then you started writing about that. Right. And that's where a lot of things started to pop. But that's where a lot of the audience is where um, they can't seem to get something to catch. Right. Like they're looking and trying. What do we need to do (laughs) or who do we need to be or how do we need to reapproach the way we're thinking or connecting? what What is it that you learned from what wasn't working that helped you find a way in to what does work?
2: So that's a great question because on the one hand, the answer I feel embarrassed about because it's almost cliche-like, and then it gets more sophisticated in terms of what happens after that. But I remember one time I was going broke and this was the second time I was losing a house and I was so... Ugh upset at myself. I remember I had bought two houses actually that was on the same property because I had just sold another business and it was before the financial crisis. So I didn't even need a financial crisis to go broke. It was like, everybody (laughs) was, everybody was like making tons of money on real estate and I was about to lose. And the IRS had put signs up all over my house. I was about to lose my house. And I remember I was in this hammock in between the two houses, the money I had worked really hard for building another business and selling it and so on was just gone. And I remember it just started raining And again, it just, I hate when it's things sound like a cliche, but this is the story. And I remember thinking to myself, why did this happen again? Like, I think I'm a smart person, but this keeps happening. It doesn't happen to other people as much. It doesn't seem like I didn't know that maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And I didn't really have an answer then actually, but a few years later, I kind of thought about it and I realized on the way up, I was very disciplined about taking care of myself. So I I started what I called my daily practice, which again will seem obvious, but, you know, physical, emotional, creative, and spiritual health. Those four things improve 1% a day, which doesn't mean anything. How do you improve 1% creatively? There's no way to quantify that, but physical health just means eat, sleep, move, like eat. Well, you don't have to be, you know, Superman sleep, try to sleep eight hours. That's very important. And, Move occasionally. Sometimes it's easy for me to just sit in front of the computer all day, but it's good to move and get the body moving and exercise a little bit. And again, you know, I hardly ever been to the gym. Just keep moving, because if you're sick in bed, you can't have ideas, you can't be creative. You're just sick. And emotional health is obvious. If you're arguing with your friends or your family or your spouse or your boss, you're not going to have energy to be creative. You need energy. A creative health. Everybody says, oh, well, when inspiration hits me, I'm there. But inspiration only hits you if the doors are open. So you keep keep the doors open by exercising this idea muscle. Every day on a waiter's pad, I write down 10 ideas a day without fail. I always write down 10 ideas a day. And then uh, spiritual health doesn't mean pray to God, although it could. Everybody's different. But it just means basically don't time travel. So regrets are time-traveling to the past. Anxiety is time-traveling to the future. And both of those activities take away energy from now. And energy is what you need flowing through you, and you can't spend it anywhere else. Again, people act like they have infinite energy, but they don't. They get burnt out. They get depressed. And if you waste energy on, like I mentioned earlier, doing what, something you don't love, arguing with a spouse, not being healthy, if it takes too much energy to come up with new ideas or regrets, whatever, you're not going to have the energy needed to be successful against the other 6 billion people who are also trying to be successful. Not that it's a competition, but if they're all successful and you're not, it's not going to feel good. And so that helped me a lot. But then, this is more recently, I started thinking of really practical techniques because I found that my interests were changing a lot and I'm kind of only good at things I'm obsessed with. And again, that's sort of true for everyone because if it requires energy to convince yourself to sit down and say, oh my God, I got to do another podcast today. The podcasters who love it will crush you and people right. will listen to them. <laughs> right. if, it, if it says, oh my gosh, I got to sit down and write. I hate writing, but I really want people to think I'm an author. You won't be able to, compete against the people who just love it. Like I read every book about writing. I read the best books that come out. And then I love to sit down and have ideas and be crazy with them and and write. But I switch interests a lot. Like I was interested in writing, of course, and I was interested in the internet and entrepreneurship. And then I was interested in investing and being a professional investor. And then I got interested in podcasting, Even I got obsessed for many years with stand-up comedy. So five nights a week for the past six or seven years, I go on stage and perform. And then during the day I do my usual stuff, but I got obsessed with it. And that's a really painful thing to be obsessed with because it's a very difficult skill. And and so then I started thinking, well, whenever I change an interest and I I know I'll change them again, I'm already kind of going through that process. I'm too old now to do the 10,000 hour rule. You know, so, you know, that rule that Malcolm Gladwell popularized where it says, yes,
0: and I know this is in your book, in your new book. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: And so it's the idea that 10,000 hours are needed of deliberate practice to make you a master of something. Well, I kept thinking, well, that's a long time. I, I can't spend another 10 years trying to get good at right, something. Right. And I realized this is total and utter BS in every possible way and i know this very deeply because a i've had a lot of people on my podcast related to the 10,000 hour rule including professor anders Erickson, who developed the rule in the sure. early 90s also i was part of the experiments in the early 90s where he discovered the 10,000 hour rule he studied violinists memory experts and chess players and i was a master level chess player as a kid
0: incredible
2: so and then i was going back and forth with him well, what's 10,000 hours mean for comedy? And can you skip the 10,000 hours? And he couldn't figure out what's a metric to measure progress. There's no answer. So I started thinking, well, what is the answer here? And I started unpacking not only for myself, what did I do every time I switched interests and and then achieved monetary success at it, which is very important for skill development is that there's skill development, but there's also understanding field and the industry enough so that you could monetize it and a lot of books that are about meta learning completely ignore the fact that in order to make any use of this you have to make money at it and not that the goal is money but money is one way to measure progress and money allows you to do something sure because you're making money from it so that's what this book skip the line is about is basically kind of 23 techniques i use and i've used and my 800 podcast guests have used To master things. Like everyone always says when you start something new, James, you can't possibly think you could do this. You can't be a hedge fund manager. You need to get an MBA, work at Goldman Sachs, maybe start off as an assistant at a big hedge fund, then move to another one, then get clients. I'm thinking that's going to take 15 years. And a year after someone told me that, I was running a hedge fund. With stand up comedy, somebody said, James, 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 some guy said to me, I've been doing this 25 years. You got to do this, this, this. You can't skip the line. You got to pay your dues. And he was saying this to me 30 seconds before I was going up on stage to do my first 60-minute show. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you trying to trash my show here? And with everything, with writing, podcasting, entrepreneurship, playing games, playing a sport, I figured there were solid techniques for skipping the 10,000-hour rule. So one of them I call – The 10,000 experiment rule, like much more valuable to do experiments than to do repetitive practice of your forehand so you get better at tennis. And I give a lot of examples in the book. I have examples from my own life. And then there's a whole bunch of techniques like this. I have another technique to um, structure how you learn. Uh, I have another chapter about micro skills. I have a bunch of chapters about how do you get also get good at your field, particularly persuasion techniques and another chapter called uh, Two Steps Back. I'm happy to talk about any of these. Oh
0: techniques. my God, James, everything you say is the best. I'm really, oh, thank like, you. I know I knew I would love you because I love Seth Godin and mm-hmm. I like Larry David. So put it together and it's you and I'm happy, I, I'm very happy.
2: I, I, love, I love them as well. They're really, they're <laughs> both really good people.
0: I love this conversation, but before we keep going, we're just going to thank our sponsor. If you're looking to be entertained, inspired and informed, then Audible is the best place for you. They have tons of content on self-help, comedy, fitness, wellness, true crime, romance, and so much more. There's a listen for every moment and every mood. And now Audible is giving members even more with the Plus Catalog. New members can always try Audible Plus free for 30 days. You can start exploring Audible now with a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash dreamjob or text dreamjob to 500-500. Audible Plus members have full access to the Plus Catalog and you can listen all you want to thousands of included titles across different formats and genres, including unique Audible original like the Words Plus Music series. You can download or stream without limit and you can listen offline anytime, anywhere. To use your Audible membership, just download the free Audible app to any smartphone or tablet, and you can even listen across devices without losing your spot. I've been listening to Break Shot my first 21 years by one of my absolute favorite singers, James Taylor. It's so good. So fascinating to hear his origin story and who he was before he became such an icon of music. Plus it's just so cool because it includes some music and performances. So it's truly a one of a kind experience. And he narrates this himself, which means I'll probably put this on repeat when I'm done because I just love hearing his voice. I definitely recommend checking it out and any of the other thousands of titles in their catalog that interest you. You're going to love Audible. Visit audible.com slash or text Dreamjob to 500 500 to start your 30 day trial. So, okay. So this book i'm already like drooling over it i love it so much let me ask you, you this okay so there's 23 things in it my thought is this we are not logical we're biological we're we're filled with oxytocin oh, dopamine, I love that cortisol we're all this stuff right and so the more i meditate and the more i kind of like show up i realize how many people ask me all the time what do you need to do what are the steps what do you need to do and i find A lot of it is like, the wrong question is what do you need to do? It's more like, who do you need to be? It's more like this. There's like a vibration. There's like a resonance. There's like a something. And when you walk into that something, that's the move. And that's where you and I spoke before we started recording about Brian Grazer like that's that, whatever that is, right? He's a lightning rod of enthusiasm, walks in a room, meets Ron Howard and just like, let's just do something. And then like something happens, even though he was like a nobody, it became a something, right? So, and I think that that's you and that's Seth and that's Larry. Those are all the people we, we're talking about right now. It's It's a vibration. That's to me, what skips the line. Do you agree with that? If you do, how do we explain that? And if you don't agree with that, then what, I guess, is the answer to what do we do? If it's not, who do we be?
2: I 100% agree. And I have something, which I believe is in this book, uh, skip the line. I have something called the Google technique, which describes this. So let's say I go to Google and I say, Google, I really want to buy a motorcycle. Tell me everything you know about motorcycles. Google immediately says back, listen, James, we don't know anything about motorcycles. but We've (laughs) done the homework for you here are the top 10 websites we think are the best websites about motorcycles. By the way, three of them paid us to tell you this, but the rest of them you should go to. And then the next time, let's say I I, want to go back and I want to research STDs. I go, where am I going to go? I'm going to go to Google and Google's going to say, James, once again, we don't know anything about STDs. We're sorry. We hope you don't have one, but here are the top 10 sites. We think you should go to. And Google measures its success by quickly how people leave it. And so you think, boy, that's stupid. Most places want you to stay and enjoy the store, whatever. Uh, But Google measures their own success by how many nanoseconds it takes for you to leave the Google website. So Google has a trillion and a half dollar valuation. So what does this mean? Why am I bringing up Google? Well, what if you did this as a person that every time someone comes to you, You immediately share all your best ideas and say, hey, knock yourself out. I don't need credit. I don't need money. You could do it or not, but here's my suggestions for you uh, uh, based on my experience. You're going to have some effect like Google has. Google's a trillion and a half dollars. You're not going to be worth that because you're not Google, but the process of doing that will almost naturally create money. And I can even give you many examples in my own life where this has happened. So I'll give you one quick example. There's this radio host, Uh, Charlemagne the God from The Breakfast Club. He has like 10 million listeners a day. And I heard him do an interview once. uh, It was last May. And I'm like, wow, there's something in there resonated with me. And so on my idea list for that morning, I wrote down 10 chapters if Charlemagne were to write a book about this one line he just said. And I sent him the ideas. And I said, you know, I just think this is good for you, um, but ignore this. I just do this regularly. Ignore this if you want. No need to respond. And good luck. And he writes back right away, and he says, this is great. We should do this as a book together. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is for you. It doesn't work for me as a a book. It's for you to do. And and, then he said, okay, but can you flesh this out a little more? I'm really happy. And I fleshed it out more. He says, James, we have to do this together. And I'm like, "No, no, 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 we can't do it. Well, anyway, a lot of things happened. And it ended up being, it's going to be an audiobook with Amazon. Amazon loves it so much. It's this book about racism by Charlemagne with James Altucher. And, you know, they're going to do so much marketing for it. It's coming out March 31st. I don't mean to advertise this while we're talking about Skip the Line. Why? Why?
0: So this is so good. Go, this, go. This, Keep going. This,
2: this is an example, though. Everyone says, oh, no, someone's going to steal my ideas. If he does this, I want some money. No, no, no. Money is a symptom of giving and sharing and being known as the person of abundance, you have to have this a mindset where it 's great if someone steals my ideas. I am so abundant with ideas that I have overflow i can 't do every good idea, and I have too many of them. So an abundance mindset gets you abundance, a scarcity mindset where oh no, they 're going to steal my ideas. This is my one shot at immortality a, a scarcity mindset you don't know if something's going to succeed or not in in advance. Nobody knows anything. And so a scarcity mindset will actually prevent you from having abundance because you won't give yourself the opportunities for abundance. People have stolen billion dollar ideas from me. No problem because A, it verifies that I'm the guy with good ideas. B, more often than not, they come back to me asking for more ideas and then they realize what they did before. They might offer opportunity or money or whatever. Or because I'm so validated that they made $100 million with my idea, I'll come up with other ideas and send them to different people. And then eventually opportunity happens. So, oh, so the Google good. technique works.
0: It's so good. There's so much energy that you're giving in everything that you just said. It's, it's like photosynthesis. So here's the thing. And I want to know how you connect this back to being a chess player as a kid. I'm just curious because my audience will say to me all the time, that sounds great. That makes sense. Except I have this problem, which is the story I tell myself about how I have imposter syndrome. None of my ideas are worth sharing. And, uh, the last thing I want to do is put something out there, if it would be mediocre or messy. So I'm just going to sit over here and think a lot before i do anything or say anything or send anything or press publish on yeah. anything. So what I'm a great question what because you think about that. that
2: is that is the mindset of most people and look that was the mindset of me most of my life. First off, the writing of ideas, the only purpose of that is to exercise this idea muscle because it will atrophy very quickly and then you won't have ideas. But the key is is you have to do things. And by the way, doing things doesn't mean, oh boy, I have an idea. I need to spend six months raising $2 million and then I need to hire a programmer and spend nine months programming something and then we'll see if I just wasted two years of my life or not. Like, that's not doing something. That's being stupid. But, doing something is, oh, it took me 15 minutes to write this list of ideas. It takes me 13 seconds to send an email to Charlemagne. And now it's a seed planted into the world. Now I move on to the next thing. You have to do things. So you have to do experiments. You have to try things that are easy to do, cheap to do, have very little downside and have enormous upside. Think about what I sending that email to Charlemagne. And by the way, this is one idea list Across thousands and thousands and thousands amazing. of idealists. That's amazing. And I've done this consider. many times, and so uh, I, I, it was easy to do. It, it cost me zero money. There was little downside. The worst that could happen is he doesn't respond, and then I learn, you know, that this is right. not the right person to send ideas to. And the upside is what happened, which is that oh, I'm co-authoring what hopefully will be this amazing thing. And most of ideas, most experiments don't work. Most experiments. Fail, but you even the downside when they fail is you learn something and you have a story to tell. So I'll I'll tell you an experiment I did. I wanted to experiment with writing because I'm always trying to get to be a better writer. The better you are at something, the more you realize you need to know because you're you exponentially increase the number of nuances you realize a field has, and then you need to know all about them. So I figured, what's a good format to tell a story that's not the same. Blah, blog format. So then something happened. Uh, Donald Trump made this tweet. I want to buy Greenland. And right away, the prime minister of Denmark tweeted back, it's not for sale. And I was like, that is the weirdest set of tweets I ever saw. Yes, it is. The the president of the United States just (laughs) tweeted. I didn't even know you could buy a country. And then what the heck? What does Denmark have to do with Greenland? And why is he saying it's not for sale? Did they just do an entire negotiation for a country on Twitter. And so I did some research. Greenland is not a country. It's, uh, it's kind of a owned by Denmark, sort of. It's like half owned by Denmark. And there's a lot of reasons that are really important, actually, why somebody, why any country would want to own Greenland. And I won't. we can do a whole podcast now about Greenland. I had to just study this. But so I figured, well, should I write about this? And I said, yes, but let's do it in a crazy format that could maybe generate some publicity. And I'm experimenting with playing around with publicity, too. So I wrote down all the reasons why you should buy Greenland. And I tell a little story about it, the story I just told you, but then combined with all the reasons. And I start a Kickstarter. I said, I want to raise $100 million myself to buy Greenland. And I gave awards, like if you donate this, oh, you could be God. a Duke. If you donate this, you could get a holiday named after <laughs> you. If you donate this, you'll get 10,000 acres of land. And I wrote my whole article, what would have been just an article, I wrote it as a In the Kickstarter format, you know, you could write in any format you want. And this was an experimental format for me. It was also, I had never done a Kickstarter before. So it was an experiment for me to learn how to do Kickstarter. It was an experiment for me about publicity because I did this odd thing. Would it generate publicity? So it was like three experiments. And I I also learned about Greenland. So it was like four experiments in one. And I started raising money. I'd raised like instantly like one or $2,000. People started linking to it and saying, this is kind of crazy. And and then Kickstarter shut it down because they knew I was doing a, a joke, really, that I wasn't going to raise $100 million. And they didn't want to be responsible for the credit card fees when they returned the money. So they shut it down. So the experiment, quote unquote, failed. And yet, here's the downside I learned about Greenland. I learned about Kickstarter. I learned more about writing. I learned a little bit more about publicity. That's so awesome. And I had a story that I could tell, like I just told you. And that's the downside of an experiment failing. And by the way, the whole thing took about six hours from beginning to end.
0: It's it's the best. I love the way your mind works. And that's why I want to ask you this question. But I'm curious how you're being a chess master as a kid. What did you learn about thinking?
2: Yeah, I always say this is a really good question, but it really is because as a kid, so let me just tell you one thing, which is that, About three months ago, for the first time in 20 years, I got really burnt out. Everybody gets burnt out something, but I thought I was like immune to it because of this daily practice. And I wasn't depressed at all, but I had written something last August, which was my most viral article ever. And most people liked it. But in order for an article to go viral, a lot of people will love it and share it with their friends and so on. But a significant number, like let's say even 5% hate it. So 30 million people had read this article, actually, which was incredible for me. And let's say 5% hated it, which I think was about the right number. That means a million and a half people hated it. And the people who liked it went on with their lives. The people who hated it harassed me incredibly for four or five months. And by November, I remember I just, I actually was crying because family members had written articles trashing me. I had lost friends and and. Ex-girlfriends had written articles trashing me. Some of my friends lost friends because they tried defending me. And again, most people love the article, but some people hated it. And it's almost like my brain was trying to protect me. I would sit down to write or do anything, and my brain would say, no, 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 no. Remember what happened last time. You'll get punished. And so I literally got burnt out. And I recognized after a while, okay, I'm not depressed, but I am burnt out. I physically cannot... Do anything. I stopped Twitter, Facebook, even email, the phone. I was just protecting myself, or my brain was forcing me to protect myself. So I had to, I channeled the energy differently. So I decided, okay, I've got this new book, Skip the Line. Let's use my Skip the Line techniques to prove to myself again that it works. And so I haven't studied chess since 1997. So at the time, it was 23 years since the last time I had taken a chess lesson or opened a chess book or tried to get better. And even though I was a strong master in 1997, I was a very strong player. You know, when you don't do something for 23 years, my skills were about the level of an amateur player. And I decided, you know what? As long as I'm burnt out, I'm going to get better than I ever was before using the skip the line techniques in as quickly, in as quick a time as possible. So I just looked at every chapter of skip the line. And I implemented those techniques. I put them in place to make sure I could not only master chess, but be better than I ever was before. And I got there. It took about three months, three and a half months, but I'm like the highest ranking, or I've been the highest ranking I've, I've ever been before in, mm-hmm. in my life. And my understanding of chess is so much more nuanced because I put these techniques in place. And I would say, in when I was a kid and studying, I learned. Discipline—the discipline of how to study—and that—and I learned a little bit about calculating and thinking spatially. But now, this time, because I took a much more holistic approach—the same approach I would take if I was learning to be a chef, or an investor, or an entrepreneur, or a gardener—anything. It's because the, the techniques in the book are, are general. But because I did them methodically, I did every t- chapter in the book. I really got a much more holistic view of chess, and I realized. Oh, this is all about risk management. And this is all about building a network of people who can help you. And this is all about beginner's mind. And this is all about sharing ideas. And, and you learn from all these things. Like, this is, I was doing tons of experiments on the chessboard and then studying them later. And so I have one chapter in the book about experiments and the value of experiments. I have another chapter in the book about micro skills. So there's no such skill as business, for instance. Business is a package of micro skills. It's sales, ideas, execution, negotiating, marketing, leadership, management, having visions. And you have to get good at those micro skills. And I realized chess is the same thing. There's openings, middle games, end games, positional play, tactical play romantic play, classical play. And then even those have micro skills. I kind of knew these things before, but now I know them at such a deeper level because I broke everything down like this. And then I did what I call plus minus equal. Plus is you get a coach, someone who's much better than you. Equals is you find your peers who are all trying to learn together And you exchange ideas with them, and you play them, and you challenge yourself with your peers, and that's your equals. And then minus is you give lessons because if you can't explain something simply, then you don't really understand it. And I find when I give lessons, I learn so much really deeply about these basic concepts because I prepare the lesson and I study. This is what it means to have this type of position, and here's 15 examples, and then I learn what it means and on and on and on. Again, there's 23 chapters in the book, and I used all of them. And very quickly, I did all, put all this in place, and I now have so much more pleasure from the game than I ever had before. And I realized, again, oh, this is exactly how I invest. If you stay in the game, you win the game. The rewards are always there if you play okay. But if you manage the risks, you won't lose from a blunder. Most people lose they can play a great game. They lose from blundering. Same thing with investing. if your money management skills are wrong and you take too much risk, you can make all the great investments in the world. You still will go broke. So you have to manage risk in everything in life. And I didn't realize how important this was for chess, actually, and how the difference between calculation and blundering, which is a subtle difference. And I, I know I'm going on a lot about this, but I've just spent three and a half months neck deep in burnout now. Why did I choose chess? Well, A, I mentioned it was my first love as a kid. I was a strong master then. I was New Jersey's junior chess champion, but I hadn't played in 23 years. I sucked before. And the Queen's Gambit had just come out in like November. Right. 62 million people watched it the first week. And everybody started asking me, hey, can you show me how to play chess? Like even my kids were interested. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. It's got popular. The, the chess streamers I know have more followers than the best comedians I know. So I figured, okay, it's not unproductive. Even though I'm burnt out, it's not unproductive to get better at such a, what seems to be getting more valuable now. So understanding the field had importance. Understanding who the best players were, I could get lessons from. Doing experiments. I threw out my entire style of play that I've been playing since I was 18. I used to play the Queen's Gambit, actually, as my opening. I did the exact opposite and played the most crazy, insane stuff as an experiment but that gave me this holistic view that I never had before. It's a different game.
0: So good. I I, listening to you. I was just thinking it's a, it's like eating like the most yummy corned beef with the Russian dressing and the rye bread. I'm just like cats
2: deli in New York.
0: I'm in, I'm all in all the time, the whole thing. And that's why people listen to your podcast and they read what you write. I want to ask you two things. One of the things I just wanted to follow up on what you just said you have to know the difference between a blunder and a risk. And, and I don't know that anybody really understands that very well. And, and everybody's so afraid of taking a risk. So then they usually don't. But how do we find the, the middle ground or the balance in that? When you said it could be <laughs> horrible and yet there's an importance in staying in it and, and making decisions.
2: Yeah. And the thing is you can't be upset if you make mistakes, because mistakes happen. And this is what I never really realized before. And I only realized this as I was studying this chess. I used to think that decision making combines everything. You know, the ability to make good decisions, it's a spectrum. So you make bad decisions at one end of the spectrum, you make good decisions at the other end. But actually, really bad decisions are not part of the spe- spectrum of decision making. Good decisions are you know, you get better and better at like, okay, this investment idea works, this type of entrepreneurship works, hiring this person might be good, making this chess move might be good. That's decision-making. And at first you might say this move might be good, but actually as you get better, you realize, oh, that move I would have played is not so good, but mistakes in life or business, or they're called blunders in chess, where you just, you're making moves and you just get checkmated in one move because you didn't see it. They're more like blind spots. That even if you're great at decision-making, you're always going to have blind spots. If you're a great driver, just depends on the car, you're going to have blind spots. I was watching a video last week of the world chess champion, this guy Magnus Carlsen. He missed a checkmate in one. And this is the guy who makes the best calculation decisions on the planet by far. And he missed a mate in one that he should never miss. So how do you solve that? Is you recognize you can't get rid of the mistakes. It's part of your blind spot. But you just have to recognize that the blind spots there and you have to consistently as much as you can be more and more consistent about saying, am I missing anything here? You have to assume I'm an I'm an idiot without any skills. I'm just an idiot. So there's still a little part of me, no matter what, that's always going to be an idiot. And I have to remind myself of that. Okay, I've got a good move. Look, take another look. Am I about to get checkmated in one move? So you just have to say, "Am, am I managing my risk? Did I send out a bunch of troops too far away from the rest of the army so they could be disconnected? If so, maybe I should manage the risk a little better and build up a little bit more. And so the great chess players, they just keep building up and building up rather than throwing a piece out there, fishing to be a spy, and then they'll never be able to get them back. Or an investor. I used to say, oh, my God, this is a great investing opportunity. I If I really want to make a lot of money, I should put 20% of my cash in this investment. You would think that's an abundance complex, like, oh, I'm trying to make a lot of money, but that's actually a scarcity complex because it assumes this is my one chance to make a lot of money. So I better put 20% of my net worth in this investment. That's a scarcity way of thinking. So the way to manage risk is to put less of your money into an investment, to not try to checkmate them right away, but keep building up to not marry what seems like the most beautiful woman in the world, the most amazing person, because what if nobody ever likes me again? That's a scarcity way of thinking. And so with money, for instance, I went from investing 20% of my net worth in an investment, even the best investments possible, to no more than 1% of my net worth, and consequently, the money I make from investing is my main source of income. And I just keep compounding because I only invest 1%, which gives me more possibilities to invest. I'm abundant and it gives me more cash in the bank so I could sleep at night. And if I lose the entire investment, it's just 1% of my net worth. And if it works out like amazingly, then it doubles my net worth. And I just want to add to that one more thing is that when you're in a good activity and we all know some people make money from investing. So that's, If you do it right, it's a good activity. In chess, the reward is winning. And in writing, people have done very successfully writing. So the rewards are always there. I know there are rewards in all these activities. So 5% of your job is just understanding what the rewards are. Then 95% of your job when you're getting good at something is what are all the risks? There are many more risks than rewards. There's one way to win a chess game. You checkmate the other guy. But there's a billion ways to lose it. There's one way to win in investing is that the company grows and then it sells itself or whatever, but there's a billion ways to lose it. And so again, it's the 95-5 rule, which I just realized, which is that any activity worth doing is 5% reward, 95% risk mitigation.
0: Well, let me ask you this because last couple things here. One is that everyone is so afraid of the risk of somebody in the world not liking what they're doing, their uncle, their spouse, you know, you oh, yeah. said that you had all this, when something is popular, you're going to have a chunk of people that means that don't like it. Right. And that's a big risk. And I, and when I really sit down and, and listen to people, what I hear is the biggest risk is that they want to please everybody, right? They want to make something that's vanilla ice cream that everybody likes. And, and they can't really handle the idea, the rejection, the discomfort that there will be people who don't like it. And you are literally to me, You're such a lightning rod for you're going to do you. You're just going to do you, right? Well, how do you help people sit with that? Because most people don't have that kind of courage.
2: Yeah, it's so true. Like people are afraid, for instance, to go up on stage and speak to a public audience because they might be boring or they might fail and everybody might judge them. People are afraid to go out onto the dance floor. People are afraid to publish something and people are afraid to be vulnerable because of what people will think of them. Right, right. So one answer is, I never, this is a conscious thing I do. It's not like an intuitive thing. I never hit publish on an article unless I'm afraid of what people will think of me. A hundred percent of the time. What? Yeah, because if I'm not afraid, that probably means someone has written this before or someone has thought this before or it's no big deal. So I never publish a single thing. It doesn't have to be the same thing I'm afraid of. It could be different things I'm afraid of, but I have to be afraid of what people will think of me. For some reason, I have to be able to verbally say what it is I'm afraid of. But again, how do you get to that point? One thing is, is consciously doing it. So even when I go up on stage doing stand-up comedy, I make sure at least 20% of my set is new because I have to be afraid of what people are going to think. And that's, if people don't like you in comedy, they hate you. They boo you. So one experiment I did once was I wanted to learn, this is in the first year I was doing it, I wanted to learn how to deal with a hostile audience. So I went on a subway car and I did comedy On a subway car, and then on every stop, I switched cars and would do it again. Hostile audience, very quick to—I have to convince people to laugh in a very quick amount of time. And I did this for about two hours, jumping from car to car. And it was an experiment, and I learned a lot about doing comedy with a hostile audience. Not that I'm perfect at handling it, but I can handle it. The other thing is, and this is really the important factor: let's say you're afraid of writing something because what will people think of you? Again an abundance complex, you're going to write more than one thing in life if you love writing. So just keeping that in mind, if someone loves something you write, a lot of people will read it. If you write something awful, which you will, not that many people are going to read it because it was awful. So actually on the stuff that you do that sucks, no one really will remember it. People will only remember your good stuff. Larry David, he's written a movie, which I've watched twice and I can't even remember the title of the movie. It sucks so bad. And so that's really the answer is that assuming this is not the only time you do something. Okay, I'll tell you one story. I've been doing comedy for six years. Again, nobody thought I could skip the line, take 20 years, blah, blah, blah. But since then, I've toured all over the world. I've toured all over the country. I bring in a nice audience. People don't even know the other side of my life. They just, they know me from the comedy side. And I haven't been heckled since year one. But a few months ago, and this is around the time also of my burnout starting, I went to Bridgeport, Connecticut, which a friend of mine told me later is the crack capital of the world. Oh and God. and a friend of mine told me later, whatever you do, don't joke about crack or democrats. And I didn't know these things. And I told this one joke. I won't repeat the joke, but it was basically about someone asking me, uh, if can you believe, you know, Hunter Biden was smoking crack with whores in China? And I'm like, Of course I could believe that he's the son of a president. If my kids school bus driver was smoking crack with whores in China. I would not believe that. And that was the, uh, that wasn't the joke, but that's the essence of the joke. Well, apparently (laughs) everybody in the audience loved crack and Hunter Biden. And I had never experienced this actually, even my year one, they started screaming at me. They started yelling, like, get off the stage. You freak Get get the hell out of here. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like the other four shows I've done here were Great, you know what is happening here? Just explain to me, just teach me. And they're like, just get off the stage. And then, even the next day, two people from that audience emailed me to say, You really aren't funny, you should think of another thing to do. But here's the point yesterday, the exact same club and the manager was in the audience, and so I was like, Oh, well, they're never asking me back. The manager was in the audience, they asked me to come back for six more shows, and I'm like, No, I don't really feel like it, but still. Like nobody remembers your bad moments.
0: Oh, my God. That's so fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, You are amazing. Tell us where we can listen to your podcast. Read what you're writing. All the books. The next book, Skip the Line, it's coming out. Oh, my God. It's already out yesterday. It came
2: out yesterday. Yeah. So Skip the Line is out. I hope people buy it and like it and share it with their friends and, you know, either review it or. Tweet to me if, if you like it. And uh, I'm going to make probably a newsletter with like skip the line sort of ideas and techniques and opportunities like I always think of cheap and easy businesses people could start or I have like 30 day book challenges where I give a structure and uh, you can write a book like this in 30 days, and then hundreds of people over in books and so I'm going to write about that that's sort of a skip the line in writing a book. And so if you just Google me, you see me everywhere, but, but definitely skip the line. I'm super proud of it. I'm proud of doing this podcast and thank you so much, Kathy, for, James, for
0: having me on. James, I want to be friends with you. I had so much fun with you. We will send out the link to your book everywhere and um, thank you.
2: Thank you, Kathy, and good luck. And I'm amazed how you get such great guests. Like uh, uh, I had
0: you here. This is one of my favorite conversations ever that I've oh, ever had.
2: I appreciate that. Thank you for
0: saying that. You're the best. That was so much fun. I love talking to James. All right, so here are the takeaways. Number one, inspiration only hits you when the doors are open. Keep the doors open by exercising your idea muscle every day. Number two, you're allowed to switch your interests. Number three, it's more valuable to experiment than to do repetitive practice. Number four, be like Google, share your best ideas and be abundantly generous. The process of sharing and giving will naturally create money. Number five, you have to do things, write a list of ideas, send an email and try things that have little downside and enormous upside. Number six, the rewards are always there. Number seven, if you stay in the game, you win the game. Number eight, don't assume this is the only time you're going to do something. When you try a lot of things, no one remembers your bad moments. Okay, now I want to celebrate a collaborative win from two of our Made to Do This graduates. This is what Kathy said. I just completed my first paid program, ready for 2021 and beyond. It helped the participants to consciously create their life so they can achieve their visions. The participants were amazing and inspiring, and I loved every minute of it. To end the program, I invited another mate to Do This member, Jana Brody, from Paint Jam USA to lead us through an affirmations painting session. I have to say it was the perfect ending for a program that was all about overcoming our limited thinking and going for what you want in life. The session was so much fun. Jana gave great direction, told fun stories, and included everyone in the process and made everyone feel special. In the end, each person's painting was as unique as they are. They were all inspired. Most of them were so proud of their work that they posted it on their Facebook pages If you're a coach, I highly recommend inviting Jana to your sessions as a value add for your participants. They will love it. Kathy and Jana. This is amazing. I love how you're working together and helping each other shine your light in the biggest ways. And the best part is you're bringing joy to other people and giving them this enriching experience. I cannot wait to hear where this is going to take you. Everyone go give them some love. You can go follow Kathy on Instagram at yes, I can rise and follow Jana at Jana dot Brody. These ladies are so awesome. And I'm just so proud. All right. Now it's time to announce the winner of our giveaway. These giveaways are happening twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. So if you want to be eligible to win some adorable swag, we've got hoodies, we've got sweatshirts, we've got adorable mugs. All you got to do is either write a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or go live on your Instagram stories and talk about this podcast and tag me at kathy.heller so we can enter you in the giveaway and I will also repost it. So today's winner is Mia underscore 2005 and she wrote, you have been assigned. I stumbled across this podcast apparently not by accident. If you don't know where to start, you have to hear season four, number five. It was so impactful. I had to hear it twice and texted friends and family the episode. Kathy is the reason I started my first blog opened a Etsy shop and took a first step in pursuing my passion. And trust me, I've been encouraged for years, but nothing resonated like this. That is so sweet, Mia. That makes me feel so good. Thank you so much for writing that review. Uh, You guys are the best. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you for listening. I just can't say it enough. It is an honor that you spend your time here. And if you want to be in for a treat, definitely subscribe to the show if you haven't already, because we have so many amazing episodes coming up, including... Harry Connick Jr. Yes. I just had the pleasure of sitting down with him and that interview will be up very, very soon. You don't want to miss it. Jen Sincero is coming back. We've got a list of incredible guests that are here and you don't want to miss it. So definitely subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify, wherever you listen, so you don't miss out. And if you leave us a review or you post about me in your Instagram stories and tag me, talk about the show, we are going to enter you into a giveaway and I will send you a personal thank you and I will repost it. Last thing. Did this episode bring you any value? Was there a nugget that you heard that you think someone else might need or be inspired by? If so, take a second. It takes a second. Send them the link, post about it on your Instagram, text them the link, email it. And if you do post about the show, you can tag me on Instagram at kathy.heller. You can also tag James at Altucher, that's his last name, A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R. And then he'll know that this conversation made an impact on you, and I'm sure he'll love seeing that. I love you guys. I'll leave you with a song of mine. And now you know we're doing daily episodes. So I'll talk to you again tomorrow.
1: Thank